Welcome to the Stewardship Leader Podcast, brought to you by the Christian Stewardship Network. CSN exists to encourage, teach, and connect church and stewardship leaders to help them create and lead healthy stewardship ministries in their church. You can learn more about CSN at christianstewardshipnetwork.com. Well, hey, everyone. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Leo Sabo, and on today's episode, I'm joined by Shanti Feldhahn, a social researcher and an author. She's also a speaker with an emphasis on marriage and relationship. She's written a book recently that's just come out. It's called Thriving in Love and Money. Shanti, it's such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for taking the time to be on Stewardship Leader. Oh, I'm delighted. Thrilled to have a chance. Well, tell us a little bit about you. You're a social researcher. You've written many, many books, uh, and I've known you for about 10 years that I've been following you, so I just love the research you've done and some of the insight that you brought into this area of marriage, and I'm excited that you're talking about money, obviously, um, but tell us a little about your background, what brought you into this space of researching, especially social research, and um, to kind of go from there, tell us about you. Yeah, I I ended up really having an unusual journey to doing what I'm doing. I didn't start out doing relationship stuff. I was actually in the finance world. Mm. I um, worked on Wall Street. I was an analyst on Wall Street. And um, it ended up being a right-hand turn. And you know how God does this, um, where essentially God set us up, uh, me and my husband both, Mm -hmm. um, to be able to use that analytical background in a very different way. To, to study and research what will help uh, lives and relationships thrive. Um, I actually have a graduate degree from Harvard that's really analytical. I met Jeff. He was at Harvard Law School. And um, and so it's just really interesting to, to see how that background, which started out in a very different direction, is, um, is really actually useful mm. to study some of these things and to be able to do these big nationally representative research projects. Yeah, that's great. So with your most recent research project and a brand new book that you wrote, uh, you tackled this topic of money, but you approached it in a bit bit of a different way. So what were you focusing on when you did this? What were you searching for? I, I was focusing entirely on the relationship side of money. Mm-hmm. Um, this book and this project had nothing to do with budgeting. As much as I know that you stewardship pastors and stewardship leaders love the, the budgeting and the getting out of debt and you know all of the good money management principles, which are all awesome, um, we really felt like many, many people had done that so well we really were kind of handed this. It's sort of a long story, but we were approached by um, a number of years ago by a not-for-profit organization called Thrivent Financial, which I had never heard of because I live in Atlanta. And they had been starting an initiative to help people in their marriage around money with kind of the concept that this is one of that marriage problems and getting divorced, for example, is one of the things that most devastates a couple financially. Mm-hmm. And we all know that money is such a big issue in marriage. And they basically said, we don't think it has to be. Would you be willing to make this your next um, research project? Mm, great. And uh, for us to sponsor it. 
And and I'll be really honest, Leo, and and I'm probably going to lose all credibility here with your audience the minute that I say this, (laughs) but I was scared, candidly, Mm. because I wasn't a money person. This Mm. was the one area that, yeah, I used to work on Wall Street. Yeah, I worked on finances, but that was like analyzing large Japanese banks. (laughs) You know, this wasn't me and Jeff, like figuring out how to work on a budget well. This stretched us a mm. lot, um, but it was so crucial because this is where the majority of people live. What we found once all of the research was done over the course of these three years, focusing on how to have a great relationship around money, how to come together around money, is that the greatest obstacle to getting the budget, the greatest obstacle to living a life of generosity and tithing, Mm. Uh, the greatest obstacle to things that are really basic money management principles, um, it turns out isn't having too much debt, right? Mm. It isn't spending more than you save. Although, you know, those things happen. The biggest obstacle, it turns out, is actually for most couples is the inability of a husband and wife to sit down around the kitchen table and talk about it. Yeah, so it's basically a communication issue, not a money issue. It's just the fact that everybody brings baggage when it comes to money, just because of our <laughs> background. And we all have perceptions. And I remember this years ago, my wife and I got on a budget 20 some years ago now, and it was a volatile topic. I mean, she did not like this idea of a straitjacket that I put on her, which is what the budget was at the beginning. And it was out of necessity. It wasn't that I was trying to control. We were out of control and I was trying to bring some order into it, but we absolutely had no idea how to talk about it. I came from the perspective of you just buckle down and you live on whatever you need to live on to make it happen. And she was like, hey, I live in America, not in a communist country. So we got to find a balance here. And it was really difficult. It was difficult because we spoke different languages when it came to money. Uh, so, so what are some of the key statistics you found about how people handle money in marriage? And before you and your husband launched into this research, where did you fit? Were you on the same page about money? <laughs> Actually, the opposite of the same page. Mm. And again, I know I'm going to lose all credibility with your audience here, but I will confess that Jeff, for years, every time our church would do Dave Ramsey, mm-hmm. he would want to go. Yeah. And I would make all sorts of excuses like, well, I'm traveling too much or I'm going to miss too many. It's not going to work. Those weren't the real reasons. Like those were issues, but those weren't the real reasons. And and so eventually, this is horrible to say, but Jeff eventually went alone because hmm. I wouldn't go with him. Interesting. <laughs> and I know, I can't believe I just told the group of stewardship pastors this. But, <laughs> That's um, okay. Honesty is, <laughs> is preferred here. <laughs> Finally, it wasn't until we started doing the research on what is it that causes these issues in relationships and what is it that's going on underneath the surface. Mm. Because, by the way, that was one of the big things we found is that when you're having money issues, it's not about the money. Mm-hmm. It's about mm-hmm. the stuff that's going on underneath the surface, right. a, a layer or two deeper than that. And what one of the things that I realized is that for me... I was assuming, I was afraid that um, Jeff was going to put us, if we went to Dave Ramsey, Jeff was going to put us on the equivalent of a 500 calorie a day diet. 
right? Like, <laughs> I get that. And it sounds, Leo, like you and your wife had a similar situation years ago. No doubt. And um, and I I just was like, again, like your wife, we don't live in a communist country. Like, why would I want to do that to myself? And and it wasn't until we started the research that we were able to articulate some of those fears on both ends, mm. some of the worries on both ends, and to recognize that it turns out, and this is the case for everybody, it's not about the money, it's about how money makes us feel mm. and how it makes our spouse feel. Right. And there's all these other factors, all these other feelings and expectations and worries and insecurities perceptions that are running under the surface we don't even know that they're there much less how to articulate them not just to our spouse but even to ourselves. <laughs> like i don't really know why i'm getting defensive i just am yeah um so that was the kind of the starting point for us mm, that's good that's good so you've mentioned that you are hoping uh, that there would be a paradigm shift in how pastors and churches think about finances about generosity yeah. As you did this research and you found this this lack of communication, uh, yeah. what are you hoping will change by people reading this book, especially as it relates to pastors and people that are obviously talking about this topic or should be talking about this topic? Right. Okay, so the, the bottom line in that what we're hoping is that we completely shift the number of people who are able to talk and think and communicate well with their spouse around money mm. right now, only 23% of people can do that. Okay. 77% cannot 77% of people are not like you. Right? They can't, you're a stewardship pastor. This comes naturally. You're a stewardship leader. You're in the, the 23% and the rest of us get defensive or, it was something we want to avoid. Like Jeff and I, we didn't fight about it. We just avoided talking about money. Yeah. Um, and that is the majority of the people in your church. That's the majority of people that you uh, probably want to work with. And the paradigm shift that I would love to get across, and this is this is something that I'm hoping stewardship pastors can help lead the way in, mm. because I'd really love to reach the broader church the, you know, the average senior pastor that just, he wants to help people around money. He knows it's a huge discipleship issue. Mm -hmm. um, but what we found from uh, the interviews and the surveys that we've done of pastors is that most pastors, now this is not stewardship pastors, but most senior pastors, teaching pastors, um, they know it's a, a huge discipleship issue. They know it's a huge part and trusting God with your money is a huge issue um, in your life and your relationship with the Lord. But most pastors are, are reluctant to talk about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I think from what I can tell, there's there's basically two main reasons. One seems to be the, the concern that, that people will come up to them and go, you just want my money. Right. Right. Like that's that's yeah. the reason for that. You know, that's why you're talking about it, which, of course, isn't true, but they're concerned about that perception. But the other reason, which is probably a bigger reason, is that the average pastor is probably in that 77 percent as well. Right. There's in the average the average senior pastor or teaching pastor is more no more likely 
to feel like he's good at money management and talking about it with his wife than anybody else. And so pastors don't feel like it's in their wheelhouse. And so because they don't feel like they have the ability to talk about it, the way pastors sort of privately told me is they sort of outsource it to Dave Ramsey, right? You sort of kind of say, well, I'm not going to be good at talking about it. So we'll do Dave Ramsey or Compass or Crown or, or one of these other courses. And the problem is what we found is that guess who tends to go to those courses? It tends to be the 23% who are more comfortable talking about money. And of course, there's some people who are just desperate. Um, But in general, statistically, it's far more likely to be people who kind of already were sort of okay. So the, the premise of this paradigm shift that I feel like we need is to tell the average pastor the good news here is that it turns out that what has to happen first is us understanding what's going on under the surface in ourselves to be able to talk about it, to be able to understand my spouse, all those root issues that are running under the surface that are the real issue, those are in your wheelhouse Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as a pastor. Those are the heart issues. Those are the fears and the worries and the expectations that you talk about every Sunday. And so we're really hoping that pastors and especially stewardship pastors can help get the the message out there that we think that it will transform the conversation if you can help the marriages in your church have the conversation around money. Yeah, that's great. I love the fact that your research shows that 77% uh, don't want to talk about it, that they are having issues with this communication and that 23%, like you said, are probably the ones that are going through the Dave Ramsey, with the few exceptions that are just so financially devastated, maybe that they're motivated, like my wife and I were, to do something different. So they're like, okay, well, maybe this is the answer. So they're grasping at straws at this point, trying to figure out how to fix it. But a majority of people do not. Either they don't want to talk about it, it's too emotional, there's too much pain there. And as we probably can imagine, I know in our own family, I saw my parents fighting about money all the time. So when it became an issue in my marriage, it was like the alarms going off. Like, I don't want my marriage to be, well, let me put it this way. I didn't want my kids to feel the way I did when I saw my parents fight about money. Yes. And so there's pain that comes up. There's emotional things that are associated with, with this communication about money. And if it's considered to be a negative thing, then we push it away as much as we can, or we get so desperate that we want to force someone to our way of thinking. And that's even probably worse because then now you're, (laughs) now you're really just kind of controlling one person in the relationship and that's never going to equal anything good out of it. So I know that as stewardship leaders, uh, I know that I want to address these emotional needs. I know everyone that I'm connected with wants to address these emotional needs. Something we all know from doing one-on-one coaching and counseling in the area of money is that it's not a money issue. It's always a communication issue. Uh, It's always trying to deal with what you said, what's below the surface, one or two or three layers deep. But we sometimes struggle with that, not knowing how to do that, especially as we're empowering volunteers to do that. You know, as a stewardship pastor, when I was a stewardship pastor full time, it was my job, right, to sit down with people and figure it out. I couldn't farm out certain aspects of the counseling. Uh, I had to figure out how do I help this couple that's in front of me but with volunteers, it's a little bit different. If we have volunteers that are just doing coaching, they're not thinking, I'm going to do counseling. I'm going to help them you know, talk right. to each other. 
They just, exactly. I'm going to help them get on a budget. And so sometimes that doesn't work either because it's really hard to put that person in a position to try to counsel them in an area that frankly just they're not good at or they're not experts on. So when I think yeah. about this, this struggle that, that we have, that volunteers have, uh, I think this research that you guys have been able to dig up and find is really going to be helpful. So walk us through some of the most important findings uh, that you think uh, we need to know coming out of this research. Yeah, we, we actually found, first of all, thankfully, we found that the answers are pretty simple. Mm. Thank goodness. That's good. Um, there are five very distinct, very different factors that tend to be running underneath the surface. Okay. Um, the most, and, and we sort of think three of them are kind of the big ones, and then the other two are like practical things that come up. Um, that we can get into if you want to. Okay. Um, but the first and the most important one, the the big picture, is that it turns out that um, we in our marriage, and let's just pretend you're the stewardship pastor or the volunteer sitting down with Bob and Kathy, mm-hmm. right? It turns out that it's highly likely that Bob and Kathy are resisting being one in their marriage. And mm-hmm. it's coming out and how they handle money right because all of us have that right like it, it's sort of the definition of sin <laughs> like all <laughs> of us sort of want to do what we want to do yeah selfishness and yes and that that principle that idea that we're kind of wanting to do what we want to do it comes out in all these different ways and it can be anything from you know, all the way from, you know, Bob and Kathy, they fight about money. And so the way they've decided to not fight about money is they just keep separate bank accounts, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? That's just the, the way that they kind of handle things. This is actually where sort of where Jeff and I were before we started this research, mm. because we, we technically had all joint accounts. Like we could all see each other's stuff. There was nothing hidden, but it was a lot easier for convenience <laughs> to use these two separate accounts so that we didn't have to talk about it. Mm, okay. You know, so yeah. like, you know, some of the income I earned went into mine and Jeff's went into his and, you know, we sort of just divvied things up that way. And that is extremely common. Mm. It's a little less common for people to literally have everything financially separate, but that happens too. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, and some people may kind of go, well, I don't have that. Like I, I have joint accounts, like we share everything. So I'm, you know, I'm not, not being one with money. And I always kind of go, okay, maybe you're not, because this was not an issue for some people, but the vast majority was, I think it was 80, I have to look it up. It was like 82%, 84% of us had this. Um, but ask yourself some other questions like, do you ever try to get the Amazon package off the step before your spouse gets home? <laughs> yeah. That's the same lack. That's a symptom mm-hmm. of the same lack of oneness that sort of leaves some people to separate their accounts entirely. Yes. It's trying to do what you want to do and to not be one in your marriage and recognizing what's underneath that. It's a desire for well, there's, a lack of accountability, you know, kind of wanting to do our own thing and not being accountable to somebody and not being transparent. 
And all of that always is going to hurt the relationship sure, in one sure. way or another. Yeah. And all of that always, to one degree or another, is going to make it difficult to come together around a budget, for example, and mm -hmm. to come together around some of those money management tools. So that's one of the big picture ones that we found. Okay. Do you have, do you have any others? Oh, yes. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> so keep going. I'll, I'll, just, I'll go through them until you stop me if you want. Keep going. Keep going. Um, so another, another uh, of the five factors, and this is a very super, super practical one. We have a list in the book of the different ways this plays out because there's all these different applications. But the big picture is that from a day-to-day -day standpoint, um, what often is the biggest cause of friction around usually little money things mm -hmm. um, is that we're not valuing what the other person values. Oh, okay. And we don't realize it. We don't, we don't realize, first of all, that we even have different values, really, which is dramatic because, of course, we would. We're different people. But we just don't think of it that way. And so I'm not valuing what Jeff values. I don't realize that that's what's going on. And, um, and to be candid, what we also don't realize is that I kind of think if I were to put it into words that he's just wrong. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. What he values is just like, I mean, that's just ridiculous that anyone would think that way. Yeah. Let me, let me give you an example of this. Okay. So we, um, we actually recognized when we started doing the research that something that was a constant friction with me and Jeff is if we were to go out to eat, um, which we don't do a ton, but you know, we do go out to eat occasionally as a family or as a couple. When we sit down, we're happy. And then the waiter comes and says, what can I get you? And Jeff orders a water and I order a Diet Coke. Mm -hmm. And I start to see Jeff's face get a little tight. Like he's starting, <laughs> he's getting annoyed that I've ordered a Diet Coke. And this was especially an issue when we were living in New York, because in New York, sodas are like $4.50 or something crazy. Yep. Yep. And then it even gets worse if I order a refill, if there's not free refills and I order a refill. Because Jeff says, he, he realized later that he's thinking to himself, she has a character flaw. Like mm. this is, this is a ridiculous use of $9, right? right? Whereas it wouldn't be a ridiculous use in his mind if that $9 was spent on dessert. Mm. Okay. Yep. I just value something different. And right. it turns out that for me, and again, we weren't able to articulate this until much later, but for me, what was going on is that I actually am, I'm kind of weird. I don't like the taste of water. Like I like to have a, a drink with my meal and so much so that I actually don't enjoy a nice, I don't know, steak dinner, whatever it is. I don't enjoy a nice dinner out unless I can have a diet Coke or something with it. Right. And I'd rather stay home and save the money than have dinner out and not have something to drink, which Jeff thinks is like, what? Like, how could that possibly be true? But it is. That's, just yeah. me. Yeah. And so that is an example, a silly little example of Jeff not knowing what I valued and me on my side, not understanding what he valued, which was, hey, we've got student loan debt and every $9 that you spend on getting two drinks out at dinner 
is, you know, going to make that more difficult to pay down. Mm-hmm. And so we didn't value what the other person values and to be candid, didn't know it was there. Yeah. And that little example is silly, but it turns out that money issues are made up of thousands of those silly little examples. Yeah. Well, that's great. I think value is definitely something that that I became very aware of early on, especially as I was coaching others about finances, because we all have our own. So I would tend to kind of project early on in my coaching career and say, you know, do you really need this? And I got pushback. In fact, my, my worst mistake, I would say, one of my worst mistakes in coaching someone was I sat down with a couple and they were obviously in a house. They had bought this house. That was way too much. They were, it was eating up about 50 to 60% of their income, which mathematically made it really difficult for them to not, not overspend because they didn't have enough left over to take care of everything else. And they had a growing family. They had a vehicle. And then one, both vehicles were not big enough to fit their new family because they had added one more child. So there were so many issues. And I saw the answer. And I said, if you could just get rid of your house and get into a smaller place that's you know half of what you're paying – it would solve all your problems, kind of, at least on the on the financial side. And the wife was on board with it. To her, the value of a home or whatever, it's like, I don't care where we are as long as we're together. To him, it was a really, really emotional thing because they had lived, he was a pastor, and they had lived in a uh, parsonage type of environment where it was cheap, but it was not in the best area of town. Uh, it was kind of run down. It was a little bit unsafe, I would say. And I saw this resistance in him that came up, and I didn't notice it at first, but eventually they stopped meeting with me because I said, this is your problem, this is what you need to fix. And in his mind is, that guy wants me to move into a dump, wants to put my family in an unhealthy, unsafe environment. I want nothing to do with that. This guy can't help me. And they stopped meeting with me. And I was right in the sense of knowing that that mathematically they needed to change, but the value, we didn't talk about the value of what the housing was to him. And because we didn't know enough to talk about that, it never actually diffused the problem. It never allowed him to see, gosh, I can have the same value at a lower cost. I don't necessarily have to put my family in an unhealthy, unsafe environment and still have the same value. So values are so huge. But you're right. It could be something as big as a house or it could be something as little as a Diet Coke. And, and I see it. I see it all the time. And you're, that, that's fantastic. What else? Tell us uh, one more uh, factor that you found that was an underlying response in, in marriage as it comes to this communication. Well, so another big one, like I said, these are all completely different. These are the five sort of big factors running on. The third one is that it turns out that men and women tend, and this is, by the way, I should explain there were only a couple of these that were at all gender related. Most of the stuff that we found in the research was not gender related at all. Mm. Um, like there was no gender correlation with being a spender or a saver, for example. Okay. Um, but this one, there was a strong gender correlation. And it turns out that men and women tend to have two different sets of underlying um, fears and worries and insecurities. And the the analogy that came to my mind as I was kind of correlating and seeing what I was seeing in the numbers, it was almost like, you know, the feeling of maybe you're not like this, but I sort of have a fear of heights. And if you have a fear of heights and if you're standing at the edge of a cliff, 
it sort of feels like, well, you're just going to get pulled over, which is stupid, but you know, that's sort of what it feels. It's this kind of ir irrational, emotional feeling like you're getting pulled over the edge. Right. And so you want to stay away from the edge. Like you, you have this instinctive kind of gut reaction to that. So you try to pull away and you really don't understand at all why your spouse, like if Jeff were to go to the edge of the cliff and be like, come on, take a selfie. I'm like, how can you like not see that you're about to die? Right. <laughs> and it turns out that we tend to have two different cliffs. Men's cliff tends to be this feeling that I'm getting pulled toward the edge of, am I going to be able to provide for the family? Mm. Like it, like it's there in the back of their mind. It's, it's, and this is something I found in the research for, for women only and for men only as well, that this was a strong correlation with being worried about, you know, am I going to be able to provide? Am I enough to provide? Um, and this, and there's a desire to stay away from the edge of that cliff, like to, to, to not get close. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you work longer hours or, you know, you, if you're a truck driver, you take extra overtime or whatever it is to right. try to stay away from the edge. And it turns out that women tend, this is not 100%, but these were about 75 to 85% on both sides. Women tend to have a different cliff, that the cliff for women is more likely to be, are we okay as a family? Is everybody healthy? Is, are the kids okay? Are they feeling loved? Are we okay in our marriage? And so there's this fear that, you know, he's working all these hours, we're getting distant, we're not spending a lot of time together, I'm really nervous about, like, how are we doing, and so I want to spend more time together as a family, let's, hey, let's go do stuff, let's go on vacation, let's go out to eat, do you notice, a lot of that stuff requires money. Yes, it does, yes, it does. <laughs> and so... And so what we found is that my attempts to stay away from the edge of my cliff tend to make yours worse, mm. ironically. Yeah. And so as she's, let's go out to eat, that pulls him towards the edge of his cliff. So he tries to back away even further, which makes her even more nervous about it and wanting to, to do stuff together. And, and it makes all the difference in the world if we just recognize that the fear, the, the worry that's in our spouse's heart is a very real thing for them. Mm -hmm. Because like women, you know, we worry about money too, but 70% of women, this was the statistic, 70% of women don't feel like it's I'm about to be pulled over the edge of the cliff. Right. Like, yeah, it's there, but it's not this feeling that's constantly in the back of my head. And for me to go to Jeff and go, you mean you really, like, really, really worried about being able to provide for the family? Like, that's a, that's a thing. Mm. And for him to look at me and for a husband to look at a wife and go, wait, you mean, like, when we've had some arguments and I drive away and I'm angry and I'm driving away to work without having resolved things, like, you're, like, you're thinking about that? Like, really? That's a, that's a thing? Wow. And, and to recognize these are real and mm -hmm. we each tend to use money to try to address these things. And we just need to be able to honor those concerns that are on the surface in each other. Yeah, that's great. All right. You got two more. 
Let's let's get it done real quick before we end. Okay, <laughs> I'll tell you the other two quick. All right. So uh, another one, the the only other one that was gender related actually, is that it turns out that we tend to have two different um, ways of processing and communicating about money decisions. Mm. Really about any decisions, but it comes out very clearly in money, where you know if my like we had a situation not that long ago where um, our refrigerator started not working very well. And I'm going, oh, my gosh, you know, like, we've got all this food in there. And Jeff, do we go buy a new one or do we get somebody to fix it? And it was really interesting. Um, I tell, I actually tell a story in the book about somebody who had a very similar situation. And as she's trying to get her husband to, like, so should we go to Home Depot tonight? Like, he's, like, walking away and going, I, I just need to think about it. I can't focus on this right now. I got to. And she's like, don't you care? You know, and so me, I'll follow Jeff around the house. Like, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? <laughs> and and it, it turns out that in general, this is not 100%, but again, this is about 75% of men and women, we tend to have opposite processing styles. We women tend to need to think things through by talking them through. Whatever that money decision is, whether it's the new refrigerator or whether the kids can play club volleyball, like, you know, whatever that is, I want to talk it out. That's the way the female brain tends to be wired to a guy that can look really scatterbrained. Like she's all over the place mm. and he instinctively wants to pull away, which can seem uncaring to the wife, right. but it's because the male brain in most cases, not all, but in most cases is wired to be an internal processor to need to think things through by talking it through. So Jeff and the average husband will go underground and try to like, you know, think through whatever it is. And, and then what happens is it pops out the other end a couple of days later as a decision. Like, you know, I think, I think she should do club volleyball, but you know, he needs to not spend this money on um, doing travel soccer comes out as a decision. We women think this is the beginning of the conversation. <laughs> and so we start going, well, what about this? Well, how can we do it with her and not with him? And, and, and our husbands is tending, and I'm sure all the men who are the stewardship pastors are listening to this and going, you know, I've spent three days thinking about this. Yeah, you know, decisions I made. I don't need that. to process anymore. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. I, I already thought about that. And, and the key is to recognize well, you did, we didn't, right? It's now my time to do on the outside what you just did on the inside. Mm. And to recognize I'm literally just thinking it through out loud. And to recognize we both have these two different needs, these two different ways of doing it. Neither is better or worse. Neither is wrong or right. God wired us different. Yeah. It's really amazing that the human race is still surviving. <laughs> when you think about it, because we're so different. Um, But this is an example of, okay, you know, Peter says, husbands live together with your wives in an understanding way. Okay, this is an example of me understanding her and we could say the same thing for wives understanding their husbands. Yeah, that's, that's so good, because you can see how 
that could bring all kinds of stress to any financial decision, right? If something comes up and something's broken or some an expense that nobody really thought about, all of a sudden it's in front of you, you're going to approach it from, we need to talk about this. We need to come to a decision as quickly as possible. The man, in this case, may have to go away and think it through and research and figure out what's the best way to do this to not completely destroy us financially. And so you're you're almost coming to the same decision from totally different opposites and not really understanding or seeing the value of the other. And that could certainly be volatile. And, and that, I mean, there's so many arguments that I, I could see just naturally happening because of just that dynamic. Well, and also now layer in the fact that maybe different fears are being triggered, like mm-hmm. we talked about. Maybe layer in, you might have different values. So you may be coming to two different decisions, right? Like, right. well, I value fairness. How can you have one of our kids be allowed to do a travel sport and the other one not, right? Like, yeah. and, and the husband is like, well, I value character building, you know? And the, the travel soccer is something that's going to take him away on Sunday mornings and I want him to be going to church. Travel volleyball doesn't. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. neither of those are wrong or right. It's right. just different. Yeah, that's good. All right, last one. And the last one is that it, it turns out sometimes we have um, we have these kind of strong reactions, kind of knee-jerk reactions to things, especially mm. when it comes to money. Yeah. And it turns out that often we are having these knee-jerk reactions based based on faulty assumptions. Mm. Um that there's something running under the surface, there's some expectation, there's something that we just think, well, this is just the way it should work. Like everybody knows this. And it, whenever you have one of those strong reactions, check for a, this maybe faulty assumption. And, and the easiest one to explain is FOMO, fear of missing out. (laughs) Because there's this feeling and, and Hey, every retailer everywhere has known this for years because 60% 60% off today yeah. is in the, Never the window <laughs> and it triggers that FOMO. It triggers that, Oh my gosh, if I don't spend this money today, I'm going to miss out. Right. And there's a host of ways that just this one topic of FOMO plays out. I mean, it can literally be like I was talking to um, my daughter and she's very frugal with money. She inherited her dad's values around money. And um, she's very frugal. She thinks about it, but she says, if I ever spend money on anything other than food and school books, like tuition and she's in college. Mm -hmm. So if I ever spend money on anything, it's because of FOMO. It's because I'm worried this group of friends, Oh, they're all going out to cook out to, to get hamburgers after Bible study. I need to go or I'm going to miss out on this time where they're going to be getting to be better friends with each other than they are with me. So yeah, I'm going to go. And, and we got to sort of recognize, okay, that's not like that's bad or good, but there's a faulty assumption mm-hmm. under that, which right. is they're all going to be getting to be better friends with yeah, each and other I won't. than they are with me. Yeah. And all there's, Tons of these. One of the other clear ways that this plays out is the expectations that we bring into money from our childhood, like mm-hmm. you were talking about. Yeah. And these, believe it or not, 
the same exact background can lend itself to wildly different sets of expectations. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you in the interviews and in the focus groups that we did how often we heard, and this literally happened sometimes where two different people were back-to-back interviews. Like this happened, um, Steve Carter at SECC set up some interviews and research for us. And this literally happened one morning where we had one person come in at nine o'clock and then the next person came in at 10 o'clock and they each said this, well, you know, I grew up poor. Um, and so I never wanted to feel that way ever again. Mm-hmm. And so I save everything. Like I, I don't spend anything cause I want to have money. Right. The person who comes in at 10 o'clock says, well, I grew up poor and I never want to feel that way again. So I'm enjoying life now. I'm, right. I'm spending it while I have it because I grew up without any of that stuff and I don't want to ever feel that way again. Right. Same exact background. And it turns out it's, it's these faulty assumptions, yeah. you know, that yeah. I'm going to feel this way. So, yeah. Wow. All right. So as we close, uh, what practical resources do you have for us at this point? So from a practical standpoint, right now, the, the book is available. We are creating a course asking stewardship leaders like you, what other resources do you need? Like, mm. what is it that will be most helpful to you? Because we're right now working on creating those resources. Okay. So we know that one thing that we are hoping would be helpful based on some feedback from folks like you is a really simple six session course that's coming out in August of 2020. Mm. Okay. Um, and so that is going to be primarily focusing on the relationship with a little bit of the basic starting point of the money management stuff. We sort of view that as the book and the course as sort of really what we're hoping people will do before they do a Dave Ramsey yeah. class. Yeah. And we'll yeah. get more people into Dave Ramsey or Compass or Crown or whatever because of it. One of the tools that we recommend, um, and this is actually something – you mentioned earlier that sometimes your volunteers, your facilitators yeah. find themselves in these conversations and they're not sure, you know, what do I do? I'm not a marriage therapist, right. <laughs> right? you know, I'm trying to help. Well, one of the things that we found works really, really well is to actually have the, the husband and the wife each read the, like, for example, the values chapter, like they can read the whole book if they want to, but you could just pick a chapter. And read the values values chapter or whatever and have them read it with a pen in hand about themselves. Mm. Okay. Literally highlighting or circling the stuff that like, oh my gosh, this is so totally me. You know, this, this is, I am willing, you know, one of the other values is, you know, some people are more willing to spend money to save time. They value time more than money. Right. Or no, I value the money more than time. Um, and so you circle or you highlight the, yeah, actually, I am totally willing to buy the movie theater tickets online to be able to reserve my seat so I don't have to get and stand in line for 45 minutes out of the movie. Yeah. And to circle that, like, that's totally me. You go through that process. Each person goes through that process. And then you read each other's comments. Mm. And suddenly you don't need a therapist. <laughs> Yeah. You don't need the the person to sort of facilitate that because you've just got a personalized tour into how your spouse thinks and feels. 
And if we know how each other thinks and feels and we see statistically, they're not weird. Like, you know, yeah. 62% of other people feel the same way or whatever. It, it really gives us some empathy with each other. Mm-hmm. We may not agree, but it becomes a lot more easy to come together and to compromise. Yeah, and that's the ultimate goal. It's not about being exactly like your spouse. We are individually brought together for a reason. We bring strengths and to the marriage. So it's not about blending so that you you both look exactly the same. That's not going to happen. Yeah. I think it's it's the beauty of knowing what makes your partner tick, what why they think the way they do that makes that cooperation then possible. Uh, I, I tell the story how it took me nine years to understand how my wife thinks about money. And I had created a budget. We were working by that budget. It was my budget that she had to just, you know, grin and bear it. Liberals. Yeah. And then, and then after nine years, I just had this revelation. It's like, why am I trying to force her to do something? Because she's constantly battling it and not wanting to cooperate with it. So I just took it and tore it up. And I said, let's create a budget that you like one that we could do together. And then I asked her, what's important to you? But it took me a long time to understand that she wasn't opposing the things that I wanted to do. She just had different ways of looking at things. Once I was open to that feedback, then we created a budget that we both agreed to. And we continue to to do it that way. But it took a lot of work. So I'm so grateful that you're coming out with this research that hopefully will help some of the couples that are out there that haven't gone through the nine years of nightmare (laughs) to to get there. So, you know, and I appreciate that, Leo. One of the things I'd love to share, just sort of, I know we've we've got to close here in a second, but we did find an actual uh, best practice about money management Mm. that I probably should share as well. Um, Because this came out really strongly that if couples did this, they were far more likely to have happy marriages. And it was that for each person, for them to allocate in their budget and however they did their money, for each person to have a bucket of money that they could spend however they wanted without checking in with the other person. Yeah, that's and vital. to have that fun money as his money, and he allocates it to savings, which I think is funny. But <laughs> anyway, that's how he wants to spend it, is yeah. to put it paying down the mortgage. Okay. Um, but that premise... I'm sure you've probably seen that. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to tell you that statistically that is validated. It yeah. really does matter. That's awesome. Wow. Uh, this has been so great. I can't wait to read your book uh, to really dive in and, and get to learn more about all the research that you've been able to, to uncover. I know it's going to be helpful for the stewardship leaders out there. I'm grateful that you came and spent some time with us. Um, take a minute and just tell us how can people find out more about you, where they can they buy the book, and and then just where do we go to get those resources you talked about? Cool. Well, the, they can get the book anywhere. Um, the the website is uh, thriveinloveandmoney.com. Thriveinloveandmoney.com. Okay. And um, we're going to be putting a lot more resources onto the website over the course of the next you know number of months. Uh, but right now, that's where they can start. There's going to be an assessment. There's going to be other things there. That's awesome. I look forward to all that information. Thank you so much for your time today, Shanti. It was, it was a pleasure uh, to spend some time with you and learn about uh, the research you've done and this book that's coming out. I think it's going to be a great resource. So thank you very much for being with us. Thanks so much, Leo. Well, thank you for joining us for this Stewardship Leader podcast. If you enjoyed it, would you do us a huge favor? And would you rate 
review, and subscribe to this podcast. And share it. Share it with someone that you believe might benefit. There's another stewardship leader or a stewardship pastor out there, potentially maybe your executive, your senior pastor. This is information that I believe every church leader should have to learn about how they should disciple their people in the area of money, possessions, generosity. This is an important topic for our generation, and I hope that you will continue to spread this word and let others know that we exist, that CSN is here to resource and equip and teach others how to manage money God's way and to resource churches and church leaders to do the same. Well, thank you for joining us for the Stewardship Leader Podcast. Until next time, remember, God has called you to be the best steward you can be. So be that faithful steward, but go one step further. Teach others to do the same.